0: Hear that? It's the sound of you catching up on all the latest and greatest fintech news, trends, and updates thanks to Streetworthy, Yield Street's bi weekly newsletter. Stay in the know with CEO Melinda Mahiri as he takes a closer look at what's happening in the fintech space, then breaks down what each story could mean for investors like you. Give your portfolio the edge it deserves and subscribe to Streetworthy on LinkedIn today. Welcome to The Yield, the official podcast of Yield Street. Every week, we bring you the latest market insights across our asset classes and products from subject matter experts. Our aim is to break the outdated mold of investing and help you add financial fuel to your ambitions through innovative investing products and strategies, typically unavailable to most investors. Realize your next level with The Yield. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. The views you are about to hear do not necessarily reflect the views of Yieldstreet. This podcast is intended to be strictly informational and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a research report, investment advice, or the offer or sale of securities or any investment product. Now, let's get into the show.
1: Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you all for joining us this afternoon. We first wanted to express our hope that everyone continues to stay well and navigate this new COVID experience with ease. To start, Cynthia and I thought it might be a value to share a little bit about our backgrounds. I'll kick it off. My name is Naomi Bagel, and I've been working in the art field for over 30 years. I spanned a variety of sectors, starting out in the gallery field where many of us did. I moved over to art consulting and then had the great pleasure to be an in-house curator for prudential and prudential securities. I'll date myself a little in saying that when I started, it was called Prudential Beige, but post my tenure tenure, my 10 years with them, it, it became Prudential Securities. And I followed that by 20 years at Sotheby's Auction House, where for over two decades, I led two business development initiatives, one corporate art services and co-directed museum services, and have now had the good fortune for four and a half years to be part of the Yule Street Athena art lending team, where my responsibilities lie in origination Strategic partnerships and in marketing initiatives. Cynthia, I'll turn the table over to you.
2: Yeah, thanks Naomi. And thanks to all of you for joining Naomi and I this afternoon to learn about the state of the art market and art finance during this incredibly unprecedented time. I very much appreciate your time and hope that you and your families are safe and well. With regards to my background, it spans more than 20 years across largely investment banking. As a senior banker and portfolio manager in asset-based lending and corporate credit, I was last at Morgan Stanley and prior to that at French bank, NetXis and bank of America. After the 2008 financial crisis, I was asked to build a fixed income valuation business for Bloomberg. I was there for five years and then in 2015 was tapped to be the chief investment officer of what was then a newly formed art finance business backed by the Carlyle group, Athena art finance. I was a founding member and, and built that business from scratch. With an incredible team, and that business was acquired by Yield Street in April of 2019. We're incredibly excited to be here and for Athena to realize its next level at Yield Street with Melind, Michael, and now this incredible team, which is much bigger and, and wider than what we had before.
1: With that, we keep on talking about the art market in its post-COVID time, but we're really in the middle of COVID. So It'll be interesting for us to go through what's been happening with Athena Art Finance during COVID. And there's been a variety of shifts in the art market. One of the most important transformations is the digitization of how seasoned and new collectors interact with galleries, art fairs, auction houses, museums, and frankly, the work itself. In a community that was historically technologically behind, The art community has certainly risen to meet these new demands of technology. And it's not that they weren't art savvy because they certainly were. It was that they put a huge value on the communication, the dialogue, to learn more about the emerging artists, the mid-career artists, the seminal artists. And of course, you can't replicate that through something that's technologically or replicated in a magazine. But these are new times and you can't get in front of people. So the art market has really seized this opportunity to not only grow its global footprint, but to reach out to understand how they can navigate this new water and how they can continue to engage with their communities. With that comes this new found transparency in the transaction space. Typically, one would only get the valuations or understand what things we selling at through public auction. But because the art community really does want not only the art community, but all communities at large to understand the stability of the market, they've been exposing what's been selling at the online art fairs, galleries online, the private spaces and private management and and private sales at the auction houses. So it's been an incredibly new dynamic. It's a new paradigm in the art world. And it's been really unveiling for the first time for them to reveal, for them to pull the curtains back, to showcase what has been having the effect on, on the private sale market. Athena Art Finance typically creates what we call a marketable cash valuation that allows us to determine what the value of the loan would be. And marketable cash value, for those that don't know, is the net to seller price. When you take away the commissions and the taxes and you're left with with the seller would pocket at the end of a transaction. With all of this new data coming to surface of what things are selling publicly, I'm wondering, Cynthia, if you might let us know how Athena might be molding its methods or if it's gonna to stick to the protocol of how it always did the evaluations.
2: Yeah, so that's a great question, Naomi. So let me just step back. Let me first break this down into three parts to provide a quick overview of first of how COVID Uh, has impacted the art market, our borrowers in general, and Athena's business. Quite frankly, I was initially very concerned that COVID would have an immediate impact on the art market and that a precipitous drop in art values would, would negatively impact the credit risk profile of our borrowers. I've managed big books of risk throughout many credit cycles in my career, so I really started preparing for the worst, quite frankly. This was because the art market was essentially shut down. The major public spring auctions were postponed by Christie's, Sotheby's, and Phillips. There's potential talk of canceling them, along with widespread private gallery closures and art fair cancellations globally. At that time, back in March you know, 2020, this was a real concern of mine, as Athena would lose visibility and transparency into the publicly traded segment of the art market, therefore having no view into art values and art market liquidity, which is critical in our investment process. But quite surprisingly, there's been an impressive paradigm shift in the art market, particularly with regards to their business models. The art market, which had historically, as Naomi mentioned, been technologically behind, but now in the face of COVID, quickly rose to the challenge quite impressively and has emerged with a coordinated online auction format. The auction houses quite quickly expanded their digital platforms and even began partnering with their historic competitors the private galleries to leverage their brand and scale. I'll caveat by saying that while we're still in the very early stages of this with the growth in online art sales, the silver lining is that the art market should now actually become much more accessible to the wider market, which will, from a financial perspective, provide more transparency, more trust, more liquidity, and higher transaction volumes, thereby greatly benefiting a market that had historically had a fairly shallow depth and breadth of market participants. With regards to our borrowers, who are generally blue chip collectors and investors, they have generally fared quite well to date, which has been quite pleasing to see. And lastly, with regards to COVID's impact on Athena and our business, I would generally say it's been business as usual, but you know, obviously in, in the face of this, not typical, um, except in two areas. The first, I would say, Despite everything positive that I mentioned, which, which is interesting for the art market, we are taking a much more conservative view on art valuations. This is paramount to our underwriting because we haven't seen a major public auction yet to truly set new levels in the higher value part of the space where Athena typically lends. And two, we've needed to work around logistical issues with viewings, moving of artworks, storing of artworks as many of these aspects of our process have been off limits or closed. So we are, however, managing and getting through these issues now, particularly that the lockdowns are being lifted. So, Naomi, I send it back to you in terms of your thoughts around this.
1: Yeah, to accent that, what I would say, you know, what's so important in Athena's process is transactional history and depth of market. And the one aspect of the auction houses, it gives you that disciplined record and history of what one particular artist sells for over the course of time. And again, these are new times, and we've only seen a little window into what some of these artists are transacting at privately. So we still need to build that historic data before we really layer on on that value onto what we typically look at when we're creating our valuation. But what I will say, is that it's incredibly helpful because the conversation around value, as anybody in any field, I imagine, is always very difficult. So the more data we have, the more information we can share with a potential borrower, that we're just not making these numbers up out of thin air, that there is something concrete behind where we're coming from, is always been incredibly helpful and why in the art market, especially in this business, where we wanted those private sales transactions to be more transparent, but there was this resistance because nobody wanted anybody to know what one gallery was selling one work for as opposed to another. I'm not holding my breath that this will change in the long term, but it's a really interesting and amazing step differently into how the art market typically works. So I'm excited to see, it's been an incredibly exciting moment for the art world, banding together, as you mentioned, me coming from Sotheby's for so many years, knowing that the galleries were a competitor of ours. Also, the art fairs never allowed auction houses to participate because they were afraid we were gonna be taking away clients from them to bring them to the auction sale as opposed to the gallery sale at the time. So it's been a great form of camaraderie that in my 30 years is refreshing, and I hope we grow and continue to move on from here.
2: Yeah, I would just add, Naomi, that from an underwriting perspective, even though private sales are happening and it's active, We will continue to maintain our protocol and our disciplined underwriting standards and process. As right now, it's very difficult for Athena to obtain true visibility into the private trades that are happening in the art market on any justifiable or consistent basis. It's very important for us to have transparency and accurate trade levels to feed our proprietary data analytics that we heavily rely on to make our investment decisions. Those investment decisions and our scoring methodology that we have internally helps us to right size our LTVs based on the underlying risk profiles. We do know that these private market transactions are happening, they're active, and what we have heard that's interesting and comforting to some degree is that trades are happening in the private market at similar levels to the fall of 2019. So that's at least to date positive news thus far for our borrowers as we have not seen any material devaluation to date, Uh, obviously no guarantees into the future. And just, just to expand a little bit on what Naomi was talking about on art valuations, and just for clarification, we look at art market clearing prices and what Athena relies on, on a number of different metrics. They span from, but are all similar, to the hammer price in the auction world, or as Naomi mentioned, the marketable cash value in the appraisal world. And and simply put, this means the net realizable value in the financial world, right? So it's essentially the net proceeds to the seller, which would be the amount that Athena uh, on our investors' behalf would receive in a foreclosure, which is the amount, of course, you know, uh, a net of any and all transaction costs to actually repay the loan. And I think many of you know, if you've invested in our deals, that we already build a significant devaluation cushion into our initial loan underwriting process for times just like this. Uh, generally lending at a maximum 50% LTV. So our deals are built to perform in that regard, even in down markets. Again, we're not hearing of any meaningful distress sales right now, but obviously no guarantees for the future, but we keep an eye on it. And we're really interested to see how the June, July auctions that are planned at this point by the major auction houses play out to be able to look at our portfolio and potentially revalue our loans.
1: This is a great segue into the next question regarding devaluation, because there continues to be a comparison between the unstable markets of 08 and what's happening now in COVID-19. From my perspective and from the auction and gallery perspective in 08, people seem to be much more frantic and unsure of their economic stability. And therefore a number of important works of art came to market that normally wouldn't. And a lot of artworks in general came to market because people needed liquidity. Those masterpieces tend to, under any circumstances, always rise to the occasion due to their scarcity, but the mid-level artworks seem to either not find a buyer or you know, drop to a decent discount when they were sold. Again, which is nice, we're not seeing that right now. What we're seeing is people being more contemplative. They're looking at their collections, they're seeing where the gaps are, they're certainly looking for a bit of a discount, but nobody is selling if they don't have to, which is different than 08. And they're trying to build their collections. And it's also bringing a a new buyer into the marketplace. Because no one can travel anywhere. Everybody is staying put. There isn't this excursion to art fairs or to the auction houses. The galleries themselves are engaging with clients that otherwise may not have been able to participate. So we are seeing growths in certain marketplaces, especially in the more primary market, meaning the younger galleries, with newer artists coming to market. And we're also understanding that uh, there's a new engagement with the season collectors and kind of a leveling of the playing field, so to speak. With art and other opportunities revealing themselves, do you find, Cynthia, because I know from my perspective that there will be a likely increase in the art financing platform?
2: Yeah, absolutely, Naomi. I, I mean, the initial COVID reaction from the art market was actually, we received many, many calls for investors actually looking for quick excess liquidity for access to opportunistic purchases from potential distressed sellers. That was the initial gut reaction from the market, thinking that that was inevitable and that was going to happen very quickly. So as a result, we've seen increased demand for art lending and with that and further art market growth from the online art sales and digital platforms we're also seeing an increased need for credit to support art acquisitions as more people are are, are looking to the art market for pleasure obviously you know for the artists and the artworks that that they they want to invest in but for acquisitions and potential just investment over the long term you know what we're also seeing um, and thinking about another school of thought here And why we're seeing this is art is a physical asset. It's becoming more interesting as an asset class for investors to allocate money given today's environment, right? So, you know, with the recent massive Fed stimulus, there are many who expect material inflation over time. With art being physical, you know, a lot of uh, investors are looking to art as an interesting play to be a part of that, you know, potential monetary dynamic in the future. It's really, Bittersweet, really, to kind of talk about this, because I think the art market is going through, as Naomi was saying, you know a paradigm shift for the better, but it 's very bittersweet right we 're sitting in very trying times, not happy times and and it 's hard to say this is you know so glorious and so positive, but for the art market that was so behind the times in terms of its business models um, and its ability to scale and really have you know, a vibrant recurring revenue type business model that will survive cyclical downturns, I think this time will ultimately leave a positive impact on the overall art market and business for, for honestly, for decades to come. The art market, which is a consumer discretionary, highly cyclical market, that has historically struggled to grow and remain consistently profitable. You know, in a way it's like the Phoenix rising from the ashes moment for this, for this market. And in a twisted way, it is really a positive development for them. Um, but they've worked hard on it over the last number of months to really push their platforms to get to this point. The only other thing I, I just add at this point and further to point out and is really very important is that true asset classes have a credit market behind them. Whether it be the mortgage market for real estate, Auto, auto finance market for cars, margin for equity and bond markets. You know, in line with that, Athena and Yield Street believe that the art market will now be well positioned to more fully embrace credit, and Athena and Yield Street will absolutely be leading the charge on that. There's newfound accessibility and transparency that will emanate from this, from online sales. It'll help shed the art market from its kind of exclusive reputation, making it much more accessible, creating a broader and wider market increased appetite for borrowing really just starting to behave like a much more I'll say natural organic asset class which credit will help fuel you know the growth which is w- what we're anticipating
1: right I'd also like to get back to just the art market as a whole and as it stands you know there's a huge trajectory in some of these very young artists where they started a very small price point say fifty thousand dollars and all of a sudden you turn your head and there's an extra zero added onto that. And then you turn your head again and then there's an extra zero added onto that. So, and this has happened to me in my experience where I'll go to an art fair and I'll go to a young gallery and I'll see something that I'm contemplating purchasing, but I say, oh, I'm gonna go back you know, by the end of the fair and I'll see, what I, see if I'll, I'll purchase it. Two months later, that $2,500 piece becomes $25,000. And again, as I was saying, exponentially increases and increases and increases and makes it very difficult for us to kind of figure out where the market is going to stabilize. For better or worse, things like COVID or changes in markets help to stabilize the artist marketplace. COVID is a little bit different in what happened in 08 because of course, people in 08 could actually go out and see a work of art, could engage, could interact, Which is a huge part of the art community, you know, it's a very social community It embraces that it it helps build on their philanthropic causes. It helps build on the understanding of the art market in general and opens people's eyes up to new and exciting works of art, whether it be sculpture, photography or ethnographic art. uh, That otherwise they wouldn't have taken a look at in this time. What's happening is that some of those price points are stabilizing, which kind of helps marketplace and also helps new entrance to the market. That's why I think we're seeing a bigger acquisition finance component where people are looking at artwork to say, you know, I want to rise to the occasion and potentially purchase something, but I might want to leave a little capital behind for other opportunities that I have. And we are also working around many logistics uh, where at the beginning of COVID were a little bit scary to us because we weren't sure if we could actually get into a place to see something, because part of our underwriting for all of you to know is that it's very important for us to actually see a work of art, understand its condition, that it is what it's purported to be, so that every part of the evaluation is all aligns. So with all of these new uh, easements coming up and people getting more comfortable in this environment and really working towards a new normal, I think we will see an incredible rise in the art investment and the art lending opportunities. We as a organization have been seeing much bigger uptick in conversations and it's mostly because A, there needs to be an education behind it. The art world in general didn't think about borrowing money against their art collections as something to do. It isn't part of our continuing education program to identify and things like this webinar, to let people know about who we are and what we do and and to help them move their dial but also there's other investment opportunities on the plate that are outside of the art world. So people can leverage their collections to do a variety of things. Our hope, or my hope, I should say, of course, is that everybody puts the money back into either collecting art or being philanthropic and supporting the museums that are having a very hard time. But the reality is that they can certainly use the liquidity to invest in other opportunities that were not out there before COVID. And again, going back to the 08 and going to compare it to covid i think it's a much more emotionally and economically stable environment for some people even though it's a much more global pandemic than what happened you know in the united states in 08 but i do think that there is a new breath of interest in the art lending space and i hope through webinars like this and other educational programs that we can really embrace it and attack it on all its levels I don't know if you have anything to add to that, or we should just go into the next question.
2: I was going to talk about the recent launch. Absolutely, that was I mean, I
1: think that ties in really nicely because it's 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 a cross market in a sense. So tell us about yeah. the last launch that Athena had on the Yield Street platform.
2: Yeah, it was super exciting. I mean, the reason why we um, had the add-on tranche in terms of a little bit behind the scenes, it was actually just, you know, gr- existing growth coming out of the loan book due to art acquisitions, you know, bridge financing opportunities, sale of artworks from new and existing borrowers. So it was kind of normal course. We were able to grow the book and then offer an add-on tranche to our investors. So so as we grow, you know, uh, investors will benefit from from these new art launches and we were so pleased to see you know, that so many investors who historically were active in other yield sheet asset classes like real estate were now attracted to invest in art-backed loans to diversify their portfolios. So that was fantastic to see. And I think, if, if, if I recall uh, properly, the offering sold out in like 10 minutes in the middle of COVID, deep in the middle of COVID, which was actually quite incredible uh, and exciting to see the demand for art-backed risk in today's market and the viability of the asset class. So that was fantastic.
1: And I also think we might wanna talk about just very briefly from the beginning when we first started with Yield Street and we first started putting this asset on the platform, there's always been an interesting appetite for that art market. Do you wanna go into a little bit about the beginnings of, sure. of the Street?
2: Yeah, I, so when we were acquired back in April, you know, going through the summer and fall, we spent a lot of time uh, obviously integrating the business into Yield Street's business, but starting to launch the various deals that hopefully many of you have seen. And we were just incredibly impressed with the process and the ability to take the risk that historically had been on our books and offered out to our Yield Street investors. And to go through that process and the the first one, if I recall, was I believe a $13 million offering, I believe it was back in May of last year. And it was wild. We, we, I think the 13 million sold out. I'm, I'm pretty sure in 31 seconds right. uh, is, is the number, which is is almost miraculous. And then it just kept on happening again and again. I think we've done you know five or six launches since then, um, and they've all gone extremely well. And you know it's been really fantastic to see how Yield Street's platform, how innovative and disrupting alternative credit has been able to offer uh, products that. Historically, haven't been offered right to accredited investors, and this community, which are offered to the institutional part of the market, to see it actually, um, you know, be purchased in the lots that are reasonable for your portfolios. So that's been really an incredible enlightenment, and you know, a really wonderful path forward.
1: Yeah, it was really nice to see how quickly the two could intertwine. Uh, it was something very new to the Athena model, and it was really a wonderful experience to see how. Rapidly, the asset class in the Yield Street model really took off as if it had always been part of the program. Yeah. Exactly. And before we get to closing, I think what might also be a little interesting because I'm not quite sure, I feel f- from the sign up list, it sounds like we have a whole amazing group of people out there, and they might not know enough about our data and how we uh-huh. really perfected and created something unique to the company. Yes, I knew, Cynthia, you were very involved in creating that platform. So maybe you want to give just a little bit of an eye into what that looks like, because sure. it really is the spine of what we do and how we go about underwriting the credit, yep. and gives us the ability to keep on perfecting our loans and, and having such success.
2: Right. So coming out of um, kind of the large banks that I did, I've done many industries and the asset classes, you know, that I mentioned largely in corporate credit and being at Bloomberg as well, building a data analytics platform for them. What I know from my background is that you cannot make an investment decision without transparency and you need data, accurate data, to be able to aggregate that data, come up with analytics to make investment decisions. So in the very early stages of the business, we started aggregating public data and we were able to go back in time to the mid 2000s and essentially build a methodology and a framework that allows us to look at trade volume over the course of call it now 15 years on an artist by artist level. So we can then you know, stratify that data, slice and dice that data in a way, and be able to rank that data by certain classifications within the art market and basically come up with a rating system right, around the artists at a macro level. So which artists ultimately based on the data are the most liquid because we care that if, you know, in the downside case, there's an event of default, that we'll be able to sell the artworks. So that's number one. So there's liquidity around the artists that we lend against. And also we wanna see that there is an established track record for those artists, so that in a down market like today, that there's stability and low volatility in those artists. So we kind of comb the market through, we have a data scientist dedicated specifically to Athena, and we worked all together to come up with the methodology, scrape the data, and basically, come up with a framework on how we decide which artists we'll lend against, and then we have a micro scoring system with various factors that help us understand which artworks within those artists' you know body of work are eligible for us to lend against, based on factors such as the condition of the piece, the provenance of the piece, the exhibition history of the piece, et cetera, et cetera. Right, um, Not every
1: but Picasso. Then, Picasso.
2: Right, Picasso, exactly, in his category. We break it down into the Impressionist category, post-war and contemporary category, old masters category, et cetera. And we score all of our artworks. And based on the scoring, which is a somewhat you know, complex methodology, but we have weightings within that, kind of what the rating agencies do within their worlds of corporate credit or you know, mortgage credit and the like, based on where the scores fall, we then apply an LTV. So the higher the risk, the lower the LTV, but clearly it meets certain thresholds to even be considered yeah. as eligible. And then we also factor in diversification of the pool, which is an important factor for mitigating risk. So basically what I'm saying is giving you a lot of detail, but we basically take common methods that are used in other asset classes and created data analytics to literally apply the same methods to make this an institutionally a viable asset class and now right. to, be offered While we- to the investors
1: right and while we focus primarily on fine art and sculpture we don't dismiss any other opportunities the economic just have to make sense for both parties and we're always interested in that in that conversation to see what that looks like we initially from when i first started didn't really even look at primary artists the the difference between a secondary market artist is that's an artist that comes up to auction and has a transactional history in their gallery and then also has a transactional history within the auction and public markets. And the primary markets are artists that only transact within the gallery system. The problem with that, again, goes back to to data and price points, because there are some very, very well-known artists that don't transact at the auction houses because the artists and the gallery didn't want it that way. And so the best works of art are only sold privately and so it limits the amount of public auction data that we have. And just as a little anecdote before we go into closing, when I first started, there were some artists that I was just like, how come they're not, you know, number one? How come they're not the best artists? But, but that was because you didn't have that background information. So within, you know, the Athena family and the Athena Street family, it's just always so important and valuable to get voices from both sections, which is what we're doing here. Me from the... Primarily the art world and, and Cynthia from the finance world, and how the Twain can meet and how we move forward and make this a viable business and engage with not only the investor side of the Yield Street family, but also on the origination side of the Yield Street family so the lending space can continue to grow. I don't know if you have any specific technical things to say before we close out, but I'll throw that to you before we say our ending comments?
2: Yeah, no, I mean, I think we do take a lot of care and we are very disciplined in our underwriting approach and we stay consistent through, you know, all the various opportunities that we look at and we're very discerning um, based on very specific guidelines of what we underwrite. So, you know, there's many facets to it, but at a high level, you know, the data analytics are, are paramount and clearly you know, there are many other underwriting factors, but, you know, it all comes together to, you know, obviously, you know, create risk, but also mitigate the risk, you know, as as much as possible, you know, given that we're lending against artworks.
1: And it is a big team effort. We do have a lot of conversations. We go back and forth. This is no decision is made in a bubble. We really do peel away every layer of onion that we can. First and foremost, our clients are the most important aspect of this, and we want to not only do right by them and giving them the best value that we can for their loan, but we also need to make sure that everybody's protected. So, you know, in closing, there's something that struck me. I, I go to a lot of art fairs and there's a lot of a lot of things that I see that become prescient later on. There was this archer during Miami Art Basel called Nada, which is the New Art Dealers Alliance. And the New Art Dealers Alliance started because in an art fair, only so many galleries can fill up the space, and sometimes it does become political by virtue of Uh, how large the gallery is, who the artists are that they represent. So, NADA, the New Art Dealers Alliance, was really based to showcase the younger galleries that didn't have the capital to get into the big fair, but also to showcase the younger artists, because again, you know, the art world runs amok in price point, and the most seasoned collectors also like to look at younger artists that might not be exposed in the larger art fairs. And on the lawn, by an artist named Carlos naranja Fiejo, there was a very big uh, sign that seemed very prescient to this time that said, even if at heart we are uncertain of the will to connect, there is a future ahead. And I've been so heartened by the communications among and between all communities, especially in the art space. It gives me such great hope and inspiration, both personally and professionally. I feel that Athena is in a great position to be part of this new dynamic and valuable in its creativity and its thought, leadership, and desire to be part of a solution. Cynthia, I'll leave it to you for the final comments.
2: Sure. Thanks, Naomi. First and foremost, it's important that we and our families stay healthy and remain vigilant in our efforts to thwart the spread of COVID. So please don't let your guard down. Please, please, let's try to flatten this curve so that we can come back, the economy can come back, the art market could come back stronger and allow for the art market, you know, given that we're, that's what, specifically what we're talking about here. This new paradigm shift that we've been talking about, obviously we want to see that flourish and thrive and for Athena and Street to provide new attractive investment opportunities to our investors. Our goal is to grow. Our goal is to you know, underwrite appropriate risk and to be able to offer that out to our investors, and you know, truly, the art market in this environment seems to be making lemons out of lemonade. So, you know, I'm I'm confident that that will all benefit from this. We have to see it through, but hopefully, we see it to the other side, and you know, we can you know see kind of brighter pastures so that we can continue you know to just do good business together.
1: So, I guess we can jump to some questions. Let's see. So, one of the questions is, where do the art pieces in the offerings come from, and can there be more transparency as to the underlying when offering an art deal?
2: The artworks are owned by obviously the various borrowers, and largely we maintain possession of those artworks Mm -hmm. uh, in storage facilities around the globe. So Athena maintains storage contracts in various locations, largely in New York, but not only in New York, in various locations, and we maintain possession. um, So we have a storage unit, a storage facility within a very state-of-the-art, an art storage, I'll say complex, where there's proper climate control, security, specifically for high-value artworks so that they're maintained under the right conditions. And so if, if I'm answering the question, that is where the artwork sits now. We have a perfected security interest in whichever jurisdiction it may be in in the U.S. Clearly, we're filing UCCs against these artworks and maintaining possession overseas. Possession is perfection. So clearly, um, we're putting the proper security agreements in place as well in in all the different jurisdictions to ensure that we have proper security interests.
1: So here's a question that I think is two-pronged. I'll answer the first part, and you can answer the second part. Some people say when the art world gets back to normal, But others say it will never be the old normal again what parts of the art world and art finance do you think will never or less likely to return to normal what changes shifts will permanently change in the art world I'll start by saying I wish I had a crystal ball that's kind of a comment that we use often in the art world if we only had a crystal ball to really understand what things will sell at what things will dynamically change and not shift back we would be 12 steps ahead but In the short term, what I think profoundly will change is the ability to sell very high-end works online and for the comfort of people to base the reputation on the condition and a variety of other factors with the person that's trying to sell it. We've seen such an incredible uptake in online sales, whether it be through gallery private spaces, auction house private sales, or art fair sales that it's been incredible to me. Buying art online has always been a very difficult threshold to conquer. This has really changed that dynamic and I think will change the act of selling art at a certain price point, making those margins in the auction business or in the gallery business, it's less hand-holding, so to speak, much more active. From the art lending side, I don't know, Cynthia, if you want to Yeah, I mean, question.
2: Sure, I I think I hit on a lot of this already um, in the positive developments of online sales. What does that really mean? It means more transparency into pricing. More transparency means more certainty into what the values of these pieces are. More certainty means that more people will come and feel confident buying and selling in this marketplace with that will become you know a greater market for buyers and sellers and therefore a deeper market and for athena a deeper market will mean that we will feel more confident and maybe be able to start looking a little bit i'll say down the rung uh, in terms of the artists that we've looked at historically which have been very blue chip very top of the line We only lend against essentially the top 500 artists in the world over, you know, centuries, essentially. Um, And maybe now there'll be more activity and our data analytics will populate such that we can actually start opening up the box more um, and lending across different parts of the market, I'll say, depending on where the data shows us. There's liquidity, stability, low volatility, all the things that we care about. So I'm hoping it actually grows and expands what we've done, you know, historically, still staying conservative, still allowing data to drive our decisions, but it's critical that we continue to stick by our knittings and what we've done, but also try to grow as the market grows.
1: And here's a, a good question that we get all the time. So I'm glad somebody asked that because we are very different than a lot of our competitors. So the question is, what is the art lender competition doing private banks, auction houses, et cetera? then how do we differ from that? You know, for the first part, we're non-transactional and we're not interested in the sale of an artwork and we're not interested in stopping or encouraging the client to do either or. We do assume that to pay down the loan, somebody will sell the work of art, but we don't get in the way of their intermediary on the art side of the business. And we certainly don't get in the way of their intermediaries in the trust and estate side, in the legal side, in the banking side of the business. We also don't take any other assets under management. And, and while we are giving money to a human, we actually have first recourse to the artwork. And so again, that's the most important part of our platform and what we look to first. Cynthia, I don't know uh, what comments you might have on our competition in the landscape there.
2: Art finance is a fairly you know, niche market. The private banks do lend against art, but they're really not lending specifically against the artworks. It's just one asset within uh, an entire balance sheet of assets that they're lending against, and they're not prescriptively lending like we do Against the artworks, we are pure play art finance firm shop, and we spend an enormous amount of time looking at the artworks as asset-based lenders. The private banks are not doing that, and there are you know other non-bank competitors out there as well, and they have their own methodologies. I can't speak to them, but you know they will you know determine you know in their own way you know what they feel comfortable lending against. All I can say, and and I do want you know everyone. On this call, to know the data drives our decisions, and, and we do not deviate from that. But if there is an exception, which is rarely one, I can't even think of one right now, it would be backed up by um, incredible research and justification. And so we really just try to stick to our discipline so that we can continue to, to repeat and replicate performing loans and a successful platform, you know, time and time again.
1: And and just by the way, there are many questions here. So I'm trying to go through some of them. The ones we don't answer, we will certainly answer privately through an email. Um, Here's another one that's quite interesting and and something that we think about when we are actually doing a loan and also how it participates on the platform. Uh, Maybe, Cynthia, you want to take this. Are the loans backed by diversified pool of works of art? Or does an investor pick which pieces are the collateral?
2: Yes. I mean, generally, we want to see a diversified pool. The more diversified, the better, clearly. If the, the pool is well diversified, well, and we can structure the loan well, right? There's other tenants that are part of our deal, other other terms and conditions. So we also build into our loans, you know, interest reserve accounts, other types of credit support. We might have guarantors, right? So it's not just the artwork, but clearly, if the pool is of the highest quality in terms of artworks and is very widely diversified the risk is lower and the pricing for that loan will be obviously commensurate and lower we always have at least two pieces in our pool but clearly look for you know a pool of you know 10 pieces or more which is ideal but we are also making sure the artworks themselves fit our eligibility criteria so we try to optimize our pools in that we might be shown from a collector let's call it 25 or 30 pieces and ultimately, when the loan is made, we might only be leaning against 10 of those pieces because the other, you know, call it 40 pieces don't qualify. So we're very discerning in ultimately how we build our collateral pools and, you know, obviously then right-sizing the loan amount by LTV and the methodology I, I explained earlier to ultimately get to the loans that are launched on the platform.
1: So this next question kind of feeds into that, which I can respond to. From a risk perspective, how do you rank paintings versus sculpture versus versus photo versus other artwork? I think this just goes back to what we were saying earlier on in our conversation, that it's really about the depth of the marketplace and the history of transactions at the thresholds by which we support our loans. So we look at all of these areas of art as one, and it really depends upon who the artist is his or her transaction history. Sculpture, of course, is very large-scale, but we look at each work of art independent of one another and independent of the artist. So the risk profile for us is less about financial risk, but we do like to see that there's going to be uh, more than one person that would, if there was a default, that would be active. I I always use the, the comparison Leonardo da Vinci by far is probably one of the most recognizable artists in the world, yet the value of his work could be in the hundreds of millions of dollars. That really lessens the pool of people that would actively want to own or could own one of Leonardo's works. So I would almost rather have, I almost find that more of a risk than I would a younger artist who has hundreds of people that are chomping at the bit to actually purchase one of their works, whether it was a sculpture, whether it was a photograph, or whether it was a work on paper or a painting. So it really is a very independent um, evaluation. And again, nothing is done in a bubble. So we look at those ideas and concepts as unique. Let's see, I think we have room for a couple of more questions. How are you dealing with the physical aspects of the authentication process in COVID-19 world with limited travel and social distancing? But we've been doing a lot of that, but I'll let you take that.
2: Yeah. So that's that's obviously a critical and physically being able to see the works and have appraisers. So, so one thing I did not mention, which I should mention, is we do have an expert art researcher, director of logistics who really handles this on a day-to-day basis. We are very keen to get indicative levels and our head researcher actually combs um, comparables and derives indicative levels for us but we always have that validated by an independent third-party appraiser so the third-party appraiser uh, is required to see the artworks along with a conservator a conservator is someone who goes and checks the condition of the artwork, and that's critical in the valuation of the artwork. So getting those two parties, the appraiser, um, third-party appraiser, and the conservator in has been challenging. There have been some that are absolutely not willing to go and travel, nor could they even maybe get into where the artworks might be whether it be a storage facility, whether it be someone's home, but it seems as though over the last, I'll say few weeks, definitely things are opening up and we are having more success in being able to go through those logistical hoops, I'll say, to be able to use the right professionals to be able to get comfortable, you know, obviously with the artwork and its condition. So it's starting to happen, it's thawing, um, but it absolutely, I would say in the beginning of COVID was you know, pretty much shut down completely
1: how do you define minimum amount of diversification?
2: Uh, Well, we don't define minimum amount. We want as much diversification as possible. It all depends on the borrower and the collection they have and what we deem eligible within that collection. And we need at least two pieces, but that's really like the bottom bar. I mean, we do largely have much more diversified pools where we would like, you know, five or more pieces. It also depends on the percentage of value that those pieces make up of the pool. So it's very important for us that of let's call it five or 10 artworks within a pool that no one artwork account for more than let's call it you know, 15 or 20% of the value. We have to look at all the factors. So if we have concentration in an artwork that might be higher than we like, or even the artist, right? So sometimes we might have an absolutely diversified pool in terms of number of artworks, but it's highly concentrated because investors particularly are focused, and, and dealers as well, are focused on one or two specific artists. So if we see that there's not just artwork concentration, but artist concentration, which clearly is a concern because if we had to foreclose or sell artworks you know we don't want to start selling artworks you know uh, i'll just talk at a high level and potentially start selling more than the market could bear and to push down the prices right so from a trading mentality we have to be super careful how we look at that type of collateral pool and if we do feel as though we are a little bit more highly concentrated we might dial back the ltvs right we might ask for a higher interest reserve and other you know guarantees etc so there are other you know, levers that we can pull to mitigate risk if we feel like the collateral pool is comprised too heavily in, in, in one or two artworks or artists, you know, or we don't feel like we have the diversification that we want.
1: So I'm going to do two more questions, uh, one for you and then one because there seems to be, happily, a lot of questions just about artwork in general. Uh, but one question for you, Cynthia, is what generally is the ROI on an art investment?
2: What is the ROI on an art investment? So, I mean, we offer these investments on the platform. I think the range is nine to 10 and a quarter percent. So the investments that have been launched on the platform have been in those yield ranges.
1: And then just to end this all, because there seems to be a lot of questions about what we would lend against and and what we won't, but we will look at everything. If there is a photography portfolio that somebody is interested in sharing with us, please send that forward. If it's a sculpture, if it is a watch collection, please, we're more than happy to engage in any conversation to see if there's a path of opportunity for us to provide a potential loan for you or your clients or uh, an intermediary. And I think on that note, um, I'll say thank you all for joining us and to those who we didn't respond to, we will make sure that we do. We hope this was informative and um, it was great to get to know you all virtually.
2: Yes. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Naomi. And thank you all for joining.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Yield. For the latest updates on the alternative investing space, go to yieldstreet.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed the show, feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts as this will help other investors like yourself find our show. If you have any questions, please visit us at yieldstreet.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week. The Street podcast you just heard only reflects the opinions of the host who is an associated person of Street and does not necessarily reflect the views of Street or any of its affiliates or other associates. The podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any security and is not an offer or sale of any securities or investment product. The podcast is also not a research report and is not intended to be and should not be construed as investment advice. Support for this podcast comes from Yield Street. Trying to time the stock market can lead to regret. At Yield Street, our alternative investments are designed to create predictable secondary income streams, providing you with tools to help put your money to work immediately. These investments in asset classes like art, real estate, and legal finance typically have low correlation with the stock market and target annual yields up to 7 to 10 percent. Welcome to the next generation of investing. Welcome to Yield Street. Sign up today at YieldStreet.com.